So Matthew 6, and today we're going to be in the first just four verses. And I just want to say one thing at the very outset, because Jesus at the first like, kind of half of this chapter speaks about practicing your righteousness. Have you ever thought about practicing your Christianity? Doing your Christianity in such a way that you have a go at something and then you might not feel like you do very well at it, but you say, that's all right, because I'm practicing. I'll have another go at fasting, or I'll have another go at reading my Bible, or that journal entry didn't go over. I'll try it. There is this sense in which we are called to do our Christianity, which for sometimes it can feel like a, a tension between the gospel of grace where you're saved not by what you do but by what Jesus has done for you and this practicing and this doing and 2 Peter 1 says make every effort Have you ever thought that like we're saved by grace you just give me this gift of salvation and yet we're told at the same time make every effort and sometimes it can feel like there's a tension are you saying Christianity is a free gift or are you saying that you have to practice your righteousness and make every effort Theoretically, <laughs> theoretically, your salvation is a free gift, amen? I am not doing this stuff. I am not a Christian because I'm trying to somehow accrue some righteousness. So when I get before God one day, he's going to look at my works of righteousness and my bad stuff and just like, hmm, I wonder, what do you think, angels? How's this guy done on his life? I'm not trying to accrue some kind of righteousness. I have been given the good works of Jesus as my gift. So when I do stand before God on that final day and he says, I don't know if he will say this, but, you know, like the comics say that, why should I let you into heaven? I'm just pointing at Jesus. I'm like, I'm with this guy. He was righteous. I'm holding on to him. I am trusting in his life. I'm looking at him. And the Father says, welcome into my courts of glory. Amen. Amen. If you have experienced that kind of grace, where you're not trying to achieve any righteousness, when it comes to making every effort, it doesn't feel like a theological conundrum. It just becomes a very natural response from a God who loves me. Because when I know that I was in darkness and this God has rescued me at his own cost and he's entered me now into the kingdom of light where I knew that I deserved an eternity without him and yet him at his own cost sacrificing his own son for me so that I might be brought into this eternal life with him. If I actually know that in my heart, the natural response is to want to make every effort to know this kind of God who loves me like this. Who is this Jesus who would choose to sacrifice himself when he knows what I'm like? He wasn't conned by me. Hey, this guy looks nice. I'll die for him. I'd love him to be part of my family. He knew exactly who I was. I was utterly broken and rotten to the core. And he says, I want to die for this, Daniel. So who is a God who would die for me like this? I want to know him. And in any relationship, if there's been anyone that you've liked... Or maybe you're married and you want to get to know your spouse. It seems to go on for a long time. I don't know. He's kind of 13 years in now. You think we're still, oh, this is what you're like. Oh, okay. It takes a while to get to know someone that you love, doesn't it? And you don't drift into that relationship. You know, like you, you need to plan, don't you? You need to like, okay, there's a date night. I'm going to turn my phone off. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm going to look at your face. We're going to talk. We're going to ask questions. All these things that I'm learning about. And you kind of get to know each other. 
You don't drift into godliness and a deep knowledge of God. Don't think, well, I saved by grace, so I'm just going to sit back and watch Netflix for the next 10 years. And like, it's grace. So I'm sure one day I'm going to wake up with spiritual power. People will be attributing like the spirit of the apostle Paul to me and I'll be changing nations. And uh, I can't wait for it to happen. You take effort, don't you, to to grow in this. And in particular in a church like us, where we're, we're a charismatic church, we're one of the happy clappy types, you might call us. You know, we like spontaneity. We like the spirit, gift of the Spirit. And, and so we, you might think, well, I don't feel like, I don't feel it in my heart today, so it must mean that, you know, I don't have faith for it. So I'm not going to, well, I feel very energetic for the Lord today. I'm going to read loads of scripture. And that can kind of seep into our spirituality. And yet Jesus seems to lay out in Matthew 6 this lifestyle where you are continually practicing and making this effort in fasting, in giving, in the word, in prayer, whether you feel it or not. Does that make sense? Because this God is good. And so we don't chase the feelings, we chase the God. And sometimes feelings are amazing, sometimes they're down, sometimes it's for good reasons, sometimes just you were were late to bed last night and you were up early for whatever reason, we don't go on feelings, amen? Amen. That was like a half-hearted amen, but I'll take it. I'll take that one today. And Jesus says, um, let, me just, let me just say this, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15:10. some scripture for you. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. It says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So what happened when Paul received the grace of God is, ah, great, I can watch Netflix now. I've got like, I've got my salvation in my pocket. I'll, when it comes to that moment when I stand before the Lord, I'll pull it out. He says, no, I've received the grace of God and therefore I worked hard for the kingdom and his righteousness. And that's what we're about as a church. So what I want to do really today is just take a a theme that Jesus speaks about here of these practices of giving, of praying, of fasting, of trusting in the Lord. He speaks particularly to this issue of secrecy. Because Jesus in this moment, in this social context, he was speaking very pointedly to a particular group of people and I mean sometimes Jesus gets this kind of like image that he was this nicey nicey teacher and he kind of floated around blessing people and it's just this unfortunate moment where he was crucified at the end of his life when you actually read the life of Jesus and listen to his teaching he was fierce he was bold if you if Jesus were preaching if he were your preacher on a Trinity Church London Sunday like you would probably feel uncomfortable at quite a few moments it wouldn't be as nice and smiley as this, I would suggest. And in the social context of his day, there was this, it, was, it was a good thing to be religious. In our day, it's generally not a good thing to be religious. If you want to get on in business, if you want to do well in your company, if you want to do well in the public life, it's generally best to keep your religiosity private. As one government says, we don't do God. And that's kind of seeped into our environment. The kind of like, if you really want to get on, like, don't be religious. And if you have to be religious, just keep it at home and keep it private. 
But in this day and age, if you wanted to get on, it was a culture where religion was at the very center of public discourse and public life. So if you wanted to get on, actually it was good to be religious. And not just to be religious, but to make sure that other people knew that you were a religious, devoted person. You get, you get the contrary nature of what's going on. And the Jewish community had the same thing. There was one sect within the Jewish community called the Pharisees, and they were very devoted to God. They loved God, and they wanted to make sure that their practical holiness was not just practiced, but known to be practiced. So there were these Pharisees that would go to synagogue on a Saturday, and they wouldn't just pray, but they would make sure that their praying was known. They would pray loud, and the Jews would often pray with their hands in the air, and so they were praying to the Lord, but with one eye, they were also making sure that everyone around them was watching them praying. Their hands in the air were not just for the Lord, but to make sure those around them knew, I'm praying, by the way, because I'm a devoted one to the Lord. And they would fast, and yet they would fast in such a way that people wouldn't know, like, oh, you f is it fast day today or not? Like, they, 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 they would make it known that they're very weary today i'm tired aj you know i'm far i've been fasting a lot because i love the lord so much you know i just i'm feeling very weary how are you doing weary why oh, i've just, just so weak in my body my spirit is so large with the lord my body is so weak with the lord i just can't cope anymore but i will carry on for the sake of the love of the lord they would let everyone know it wasn't just how are you doing fine how are you doing fine it's like you would know if they were fasting or not they were making a public demonstration. They wouldn't just give to those in need. They would have like one eye open and just see who's around. Wait for a little crowd to walk past. Let me clinking around in their pockets and like ching, 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 ching. Pouring it into people's, you know, making sure that everyone would know that they were righteous ones. So today, if you, if you call someone, you know, if someone said they're so righteous, that's not like common, it's not a commendation in our culture, is it? But what it is taken from these moments where there were those who were trying to display their self-righteousness and present themselves better than others. And in this context, in this crowd where Jesus is in the summer, you've got to understand, these people were in the crowd. And listen to what Jesus says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And you can imagine half the crowd saying, uh-huh, you preach it, Jesus, because like these Pharisees were in their face all the time, going to synagogue, they were always there displaying their outward displays of righteousness. So half the crowd were like, you preach it, you go, Jesus. And the other half were beginning to feel slightly uncomfortable because they knew where Jesus was going with this. For them, for, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he goes further. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. For us in our day, a hypocrite is someone who pretends that their life is actually better than it really is. They put this outward public display of righteousness that is better than the real thing. In Jesus' day, to be a hypocrite was literally just to be an actor. 
Hypocrites would be in the, in the amphitheater and they would be the actors who would be performing for the crowds and the amphitheaters. So I'm guessing if they had their own version of the Oscars, they would be like the best supporting hypocrite awards because they were like a leading hypocrite, supporting hypocrites, supporting hypocrites cast. Because if, if to be a hypocrite is literally to be an actor. So what Jesus is saying with the people in the room, says don't be like the actors when they go to church, acting like they are better than they actually are. You can, you can imagine like some of these Pharisees and how they were like, you, you know, they, they wanted this guy dead because he made them feel so deeply uncomfortable. And there were two issues with being an, an actor or being a hypocrite. The first issue has to do with masks and the second issue has to do with choirs and I will explain. The first issue that Jesus has with these Pharisees was with the fact that they were wearing masks. So if you, if you were like part of the Roman Empire at the time, you went to, went to the theatre, you went down the West End, you put on your best clothes and you're okay, we're going to go see the hypocrites put on some new play. What they would do, they wouldn't just like act with their faces or put on makeup, the actors would have masks. So put on, this is a sad face, you've probably seen them, this is a happy face, this is a comedy, this is a tragedy. And so they would wear these masks pretending to be someone that they weren't. Like, uh, so you would go and say, okay, they're happy, all right, they're sad, they're angry. It was very clear, it's like very like black and white acting. It's kind of not much in between in terms of nuance. It was kind of a few different emotions that were displayed. But they were put on these masks. And Jesus was saying, as these Pharisees are going to synagogue and walking around their everyday life, they are in essence putting on masks to pretend that they are better than they actually are. These guys were more concerned with their outward behavior than actually what was going on in their heart. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount continually is going for the heart over outward behavior. So Jesus in chapter 5, he goes and he talks about um, murdering. And you can imagine some of the Pharisees like, you know, what's your murder rate this week? Oh, zero. Well, well done. My murder rate zero as well. And Jesus says, I don't actually care about your murdering. Even if you've been angry towards someone in your heart... It's as though you've murdered someone. How many times have you committed adultery this week? No, zero. Great. Jesus says, so what? It matters what's going on in your heart. Even if you've looked at someone lustfully, it's as though you've committed adultery. Jesus raises the bar on authenticity in terms of what happens in your inner life and your outer life in such a way that he is more concerned with who you are in private. It's not that just that you match your inner life and your outer life. Jesus seems to be continually concerned that your inner life is bigger and better and more righteous than your outer life. There are some people, aren't they? And you, they look quite impressive on the outside. You don't have to like name names, but you kind of get. You think, wow, they, they seem really, like, really great. And you get to know them. And after a while, after a few weeks and after a few months, you're like, they're not quite who I. Thought they were. You ever come across people like that? And there are other people who you think, oh, they're okay. It's like so and so, Joe Bloggs. It's just like, I like to get to know them. And as you get to know them, little bits of their life and their inner life and things come out and other stories come out. And as you get to know them, you begin to realize this person is a bigger person than I realized. There is more going on in their inner life than meets the eye. Have you ever met those people? And as you get to know them, their inner life, you actually. You, 
You get more impressed with them, not less impressed with them. And Jesus is concerned with building iceberg Christians. Those who, like, you see a little bit on the outside, but what you don't know, and what you will know one day in glory, is that there is this depth and this weight and this glory and this righteousness and this practice of righteousness that is going on way behind the scenes, underneath their life, that is undergirding their life, that you cannot see. And Jesus is concerned with that bit of our life. Which is encouraging... And it's challenging, I would suggest. Amen? Because Jesus seems to suggest that who we are in private is who we actually are. And we tend to take our cues from what people say about our public moment. We listen to those voices. And Jesus seems to suggest that who we are in private, in our hearts, behind closed doors, that's actually who we are, if we want to know how we're doing. Because, I mean, everyone can put on a smiley face for two hours on a Sunday. Amen? Like, all right, guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> are you, like, trying to prove me wrong or something? Like, no, 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 we're not smiling. I'm very real right now. I'm demonstrating really what's in my heart, and I'm tired and grumpy. Fine. But anyone can, like, put on a kind of, like, a moment. And Jesus goes for the heart. And you might not be a Christian here today. You might be you know, here at church for the very first time. And you might be someone like wanting to put your hand on saying, like, to be, a, to be a hypocrite is kind of, it gets leveled at Christians a lot of the time, doesn't it? Like, oh, you're saying you're not hypocrites, but one of the chief criticisms of the church is that we are hypocritical. And two things at least to say to this. Firstly, probably, yes. We are absolutely hypocritical. I preach a better morality, I preach a better righteousness than I actually live because I am not in this Christianity because I have achieved something. I am in this Christianity because I have received a salvation that is by grace, amen? I am here because I am a, a, a sinner who has been saved by the grace of Jesus, by the death of Jesus. And we get into trouble as a church when we claim that we are something because we are not here on a Sunday because we've achieved something, because we've received it. So I don't claim perfection. As I give out the message of Jesus, I am taking it for myself. I'm taking the same medicine that I'm giving out. I need it, we all need this. So we don't claim it. And if, if you are new to church, you need to know that this is the place where you with your sin and your brokenness and some of your darkness and your hurts and your pains, you are welcome. And as soon as you join the church, you are a hypocrite with us. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks and Pumo. We're not here because we've attained anything. We're here because we've received something. But the second thing is this. As a church, we want to close the gap between the righteousness that Jesus lays out and our lived reality as individuals amen so we want people when they come into contact with us to come into contact with the kindness and the grace and the generosity and the love and the sacrificial nature of God himself amen we want people to come into contact with the utter purity of Jesus Christ when they meet us when people come and they gather and they meet with us and they come to our community groups and here on a Sunday and they just meet us out on the street they we want them to meet 
the purity and the love of Jesus, amen? So we want to close the gap between the righteousness of Jesus and our own life. And the way we close that gap between our life and the righteousness of Jesus is a very simple one, but sometimes a painful one, this process of confession and repentance. Confession is a very simple thing. It's simply saying out loud what is the reality of my life, which is obviously a really fun thing to do. And in just a minute, we're going to start with Richard, and we're going to go around... (laughs) And we're going to give her the microphone to everyone one by one. And we're going to work through till five o'clock until everyone's can... No. But we confess. James 5.17 is like one of the least memorized verses ever. Confess your sins to one another, and in so doing, you will receive healing. Because when you say out loud the reality of actually what is going on in your life, there is healing, there is breakthrough, there is power to be had. And it's not that you have to stand up on a Sunday and confess to a big public church, but you confess it to God, you confess it to close, trusted friends, you confess the reality of who you are and how you are and how you need the grace of God in your life. And as you do so, you begin to close the gap between Jesus' righteousness and your own lived experience. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Methodist movement, he formed 22 questions that he would get his churches to ask each other in small groups. Would you like to know the first question that he asked his churches to ask one another? Thank you. Okay. This is what he asked his churches to ask one another. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Oh, wow. Start your community group off, off with that question and see how it goes. Like, just rescuing the meeting from that point on. But isn't it so easy to fall into this trap? We do it in so many ways. What about retweeting stories of injustice or sharing stories of injustice on our Facebook feed while actually in our heart having so little compassion for the actual need that's going on? It's just virtue signaling to, I'm on the right side of this, and then I'm going to carry on with the rest of my life. What around fighting for public causes and being vocal about public causes, yet when at the same time, you can be participating in organizations or practices that are actually working against the same thing that you say you are fighting against publicly. And it happens in subtle ways. If you're a Christian, if you've been in a prayer meeting with others, have you ever experienced this? When you are praying and halfway through your prayer, you realize you're more concerned with how the people in your group think your prayer is going than what God thinks of your prayer. Has everyone been in that moment? You realize, I think I'm actually just talking to the people around me more than talking to God. You're just saying nice things to people around you rather than actually pleading with the God of the universe to do something in this situation because you're playing to the crowd, you're putting a, this, this mask on. You can just go for like the bog standard lie. If you're white and British, this is like standard fare for us. How are you doing? Fine. And you get a cup of coffee, even though inside you might be broken and desperate and screaming out for help, you put on a mask. And we want this place to be a place where there are no masks where who you are on the inside is who you are on the outside. What if you took an audit of your prayer life? 
And what if you found out that you prayed more with other people than you did when you were by yourself? That would be an ouch moment, wouldn't it? What if Chris came along with his Deloitte skills and says, well, I'm going to do an audit of your prayer life. Next week, I'm going to give you a, a full appraisal. And I'm going to tell you the minutes spent in private prayer and the minutes spent in public prayer. What if like, public prayer, great. Private prayer when you're actually by yourself. I think we found one moment on Tuesday afternoon where you kind of something in your heart towards God on the way to work. You're like, okay, something needs to happen there. Robert Murray McShane, who was a pastor in Dundee in the 1800s, he said this, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Ouch. Believe that? What a man is or a woman is on their knees before God, that they are, and nothing more. That's sobering. And I think he's in line with Jesus. Seems to suggest who you are in private is actually who you really are. So the first issue is masks, us putting masks on, pretending that we're slightly better. The other issue is choruses or choirs. Because what would, excuse me, what would happen in, in, the, in this day, in the first century, that if you went to the theatre, to the amphitheatre, you would go and sit in the amphitheatre and there would be the hypocrites, the actors doing their performances, and there would also be a choir who would be there alongside them. And sometimes there are some performances that still have this to, that, to this day, but the, the actors would be performing and the choir would be singing responses almost in commentary to what has just happened. And there's been like, I guess, La La Land and stuff like that. They're kind of singing and it's kind of commentary to what's going on. So there's this kind of back and forth before, between this kind of musical nature of, of it. And Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of doing exactly the same thing when their audience is there and they should be performing for their audience who have paid their denarii to come and sit in the amphitheater. They're actually performing for the choir rather than the true audience. And he says to the Pharisees, you are doing your righteousness for those around you rather from the for the one audience who actually matters God himself so he says this in in verse one beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them what he doesn't say is that it's wrong for your righteousness to be seen it's not like if someone saw you put some money in the basket on Sunday then it's blown but if you are doing it in order that you might be seen, there's a problem. Because you can do very good things for bad reasons. Yeah? You can do good things for good reasons. You can preach for bad reasons. You can pray for bad reasons. You can pray desiring that other people would be very impressed with the length and the quality and the quantity of Bible verses within your prayer. And people are like, I think, I think people got that one. I got quite a few, hmm, hmm, amens, hmm. And you rate the goodness of your prayer on how many amens you got from people's under their breath. But it can happen, can't it? That we actually work for the wrong audience. And I think we live in a culture today that is actually building us as people towards this and not away from it. The social media industry is basically built on this idea that you live your life for an audience that is out there rather than just enjoying the moment that you have as a gift. 
we used to drive past Peggy Portion on the way to our old venue. If anyone hands up, if you know Peggy Porsche, Portion, is that how you say it? It's like the really pink cafe. I think there's two. There's one in Chelsea, there's one in Victoria. Anyway, we drive past at like five to nine. It only just opened five to nine on a Sunday morning and there was already a queue of people who had arrived with their suitcases from around the world, I'm guessing, and they had dressed themselves up, put on their makeup like they were going out on a Friday night at 10.30 in their evening, getting ready to have their photo taken outside of Peggy Portion. And they have carefully selected tables and chairs outside so you don't even have to buy the coffee. You can just pretend that you bought the coffee, sat outside, have your photo taken, Taken, like this is the life that you really live nine o'clock just chilling out heavily makeup with all my best garb on just relaxing on a Sunday morning in Peggy Portion in central London and that goes beep into the socials and that's what we can do with our Christian life we're not actually doing it for the one person who matters God himself we practice it so that others around can see so that they know who we are. We pray for other people's opinions to be better of us. We can compete with our spirituality. We can elbow our way into moments because we think, I want to be known, I want people to see. And so what Jesus tells us is the antidote to this is to practice in secret. So he says in verse three of, of chapter six, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. This isn't a proof text for being super disorganized with your finance. Like, I don't know what's going on, like there's money coming in, there's money going out. This is actually Jesus saying that when you do give away, you want to give away in such a fashion that your left hand is curious what your right hand is doing and by the time your right hand has done it probably on your phone these days as you're on your app your right hand has already chosen to forgot forget about it so your left hand never knows so that you don't even mull on it yourself so you're not like feeding your self-worth on what a good person i am because of the money that i give away no one will know that's how righteous i am but I will feed my soul on the memory of my righteousness. <laughs> Listen to what he says about prayer in, in verse six. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. There's this funny thing that goes on in Christian Instagram circles, if you're on Instagram and you're a Christian, you might know this. It's the classic Bible open coffee shot. Seen that one? It's like there's a journal out, the Bible's open, coffee, like hashtag time with the Lord, hashtag prayer, hashtag feeling great today, hashtag love the Lord. And basically like, you've like, what, what? Like Jesus says, you go away into secret, and you love the Lord in secret. I was like, no, 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 no. This moment has got to get on Instagram because if it's not on Instagram, it didn't really happen. I don't care about the eternal rewards. If, if people don't know about it on Tuesday morning, I, you know, we're built like this, aren't we? Like we somehow, there's this instinct that is being built into us that whatever we do, we have to somehow, if it's not known by other people, did it even happen? 
Jesus says, when you pray, go into private. And then he says this about fasting. He says, verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. It's just a good tip for men in particular, just do that. (laughs) That was not in my notes, I'm tired. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is what it means to practice your righteousness. You find ways of doing it so others don't know. And sometimes for some of us in this room who know this is so strong in our hearts, it is a choice to say, I am going to practice some financial giving, some praying, some fasting in such a way that other people will never know. I am going to choose to fast, for example, on a day that is not a Trinity Church London pursuit day, and I'm not going to tell my community group about it. I'm going to choose to take an afternoon off work to go and prayer walk, and I am not going to hashtag loving the Lord in London about it. It's disciplining your heart to say, I want to love the Lord. And the way that we do this, Jesus seems to suggest, is that we are more aware of the Father's presence than those around us. He continually, four times in these verses, talks about the Father. So in verse 4, he says, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 18, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There is a Father that you have in heaven, and he sees every aspect of your life. And sometimes, historically, the church has hung that over people like it's a condemning thing. God is watching. You're on your laptop at home by yourself. God is watching. You're on the tube. You're you're thinking thoughts. God is watching. And it can kind of hang over the church like, God sees everything, so be careful. Like he's this big brother in the sky. But this doctrine that God sees everything is actually good news. Because it means we do not need to keep any masks on. You don't need to keep any pretense up because God already knows. And he was not fooled by you. He came and he died for your sins on that cross and was rose on the, rose on the third day. And when he actually got to know you, he wasn't like, shucks, if I'd actually known who you really were, like, I feel really let down by you. You're not the kind of person that I thought you were. Like, and now you're adopted into my family and I feel, uh, I'm going to have to put you on a different list now. I just feel so let down. He knew exactly who you were. He saw who you were and he died for every bad aspect of you and he loves you even so. Hallelujah. This is good news. Psalm 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. So the, the antidote to masks and choirs is the presence of our Father in heaven. That the knowledge that he sees everything becomes more real than the fact that you are looking at me right now and I am looking at you. 
that the eyes, the loving, gracious, kind, everlasting eyes of the Father who are watching every aspect of you right now. Every physical neuron in your body is being watched by the presence of our Father. Every thought, every emotion, for good and for bad, is known by your Father right now. Isn't that amazing? The deepest hurts that you live with, that you may not have even told the closest loved one, your Father knows about and feels with you. And not only does the Father see, we're told, but the Father rewards. This is amazing. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That when you actually live your life before the presence of the Father who sees everything that you are about and you live for him as an audience of one and you don't play to the gallery, when you actually do that, we're told, there is a reward from the Father in the kingdom of God. This is amazing. And sometimes we can feel like quite uncomfortable because it can feel like, well, surely if you're practicing your righteousness then for rewards, isn't that just... You're just being mercenary with God. Like, I will pray and I'll do my stuff and, like, one day I'll get a reward in in, in his place. C.S. Lewis, who preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory, he speaks to this. And he says there are natural consequential rewards and there are unnatural rewards for what you do. So he says if you love a woman, talks about a man loving a woman, and if he loves this woman because she's got this vast estate and her dad owns all all this inheritance and one day, like... If he loves her for money, that's an unnatural reward for love. The natural reward for love is marriage. That is the consummation of love, it's marriage. And he talks about, it's old like 80 years ago, so you've got to bear with it, a schoolboy studying hard to get a scholarship into university, and the unnatural reward would be a silver goblet. But the natural reward would be a scholarship into a university to study further. That's the natural reward. And it's the same with the Father. If we work for the Father, there is an unnatural reward and a natural reward. And the natural reward is more of the knowledge of God. Because if He is the one who satisfies our soul and we discipline ourselves and we practice our righteousness to know Him, then the natural reward for our walking with Him is more of Him that we actually get to know more of his glory, more of his beauty, more of his love that transforms us with more peace, with more joy, with more energy, with more vitality, with less power of the opinions of those around us, and we are more now controlled by his love. We're like explorers into the eternal, infinite realms of glory, and yet our equipment is not harnesses and ropes, but it's fasting and it's prayer and it's giving and it's scripture reading and it's journaling and it's gathering with the saints. And as we do that, we are exploring abundant glory in God that never ends. And the reward is more of him and more of him and more of him. The Beatitudes in in chapter 5 tell us that there is an an inheritance for us in the kingdom of God. That if, as Matthew 6.33 says, you seek the kingdom and his righteousness, the natural reward is more of his kingdom. That you will inherit this earth as part of the kingdom. 
you will be part of the kingdom of God in glory. And the good news is this. Someone on earth, a friend, a colleague, someone might applaud you for being a good person. And that applause may last for two minutes and then it's forgotten about. The rewards of God are eternal. They will never fade. You will live 10,000 years with the rewards that the Father gives you and they will never fade, they will never rust, they will never be destroyed. They will only grow brighter and brighter and brighter. And the rewards of the Father are true and proper because someone may applaud you on earth but they don't know the true self. You might know, actually, I'm not as good as you think I am and it becomes deeply unsatisfying and uncomfortable and yet when the Father sees you and He rewards you, He knows everything about you inside out. So the rewards of the Father are true and proper and real and satisfying and they bring everlasting life. Amen? Amen. Amen? So my passion for us as a church is that we become those who are bigger on the inside than we are on the outside. Amen? Amen. That we live lives that are more righteous and more godly than people would even suspect from two minutes of time with us that our church will become more powerful than the corporate size of who we actually are. That the sum of our parts would be less than the reality of who we are actually in God with spiritual power. Amen.